Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, June the 22nd. This week's podcast feature is about gene therapy for Parkinson's disease, as we publish a phase one safety and tolerability trial, exploring a potentially new approach to treating this disease. Before that, some brief highlights from the issue and thelancet.com. The economist Jeffrey Sachs and other leading figures in global health make a strong case for a massive implementation of insecticidal bed nets for the prevention of malaria. In an online comment published on June the 21st, they underline how relatively inexpensive this crucial strategy is, only 0.6 of a dollar per person per year. The lead editorial in the June 23rd issue highlights how clinicians need to be more aware of early indicators for ovarian cancer, such as gastrointestinal and urinary symptoms in women. Ovarian cancer usually presents late and prognosis is usually poor. The editorial comments that ovarian cancer is not a silent killer and that extra vigilance among clinicians is essential to detect this cancer as early as possible. A research article shows how the doubling of doses of vitamin A in developing countries, previously recommended by a health agency, has no beneficial effect for women or infants. And this week's seminar assesses the latest developments and future ideas to treat neuroblastoma, the solid tumour that sometimes affects children. But back to this week's feature... Could there be a role for gene therapy in the treatment of Parkinson's disease? A research article this week reports the results of a phase 1 safety and tolerability trial. Here's one of the study authors, Professor Matt During. Professor During, let's start with a bit of context here. Up until now, what has research told us about how we treat Parkinson's disease? Well, research has told us that the predominant pathology in the brain of people with Parkinson's disease is, is a loss of dopamine cells in the midbrain. And so the mainstay of treatment is the use of levodopa, um, sometimes called also cinnamat, and other so-called dopamine drugs that increase the neurotransmitted dopamine and by doing so, free up movements. And when these drugs were developed approximately 40 years ago, uh, it was a major advance in Parkinson's. Since that time, there have been new drugs coming out, but none has really made any significant improvement above and beyond uh, the use of the levodopa. Approximately five to ten years ago now, the next big development in Parkinson's treatment was the so-called DBS, or deep brain stimulation, in which electrodes are implanted deep in the brain and stimulated, and that tends to reset the circuitry that controls movement, and patients who no longer respond to the drugs um, obtain benefit from such surgery. And the, this type of treatment has really told us that Parkinson's is a, a sort of a network. There's a, there's, it's not just a simple loss of dopamine in the brain. There's a sort of a network that controls movement. And if you can try and restore the chemical balance in that work, network, you can get symptomatic improvement. And so basically that's what these treatments have told us. Can you just compare and contrast, if you like, the pros and cons of deep brain stimulation compared with the potential for gene therapy? Well, as I mentioned before, deep brain stimulation is a major advance, definitely. Patients completely refractory go into surgery, and it's a, it's a big surgery. They, they require an electrode to be implanted chronically in the brain, and that electrode needs to be connected with wires that are tunneled under the skin and connected to a battery pack and a stimulator implanted in the chest wall. So it's a, it's a major complicated procedure. Last many, many hours is done under general anesthetic, and not only does it take a lot of time and the surgery is quite complicated, but to actually get the correct parameters to, to stimulate the electrode uh, takes a little bit of programming time. So it usually is repeated office visits and 
the neurologist has to fiddle with this to get it just right. And also because it's an electrode and, and affects the brain not just exactly where the electrode's implanted, but areas around there, its placement has to be extremely precise within a millimeter accuracy. And so the surgery is quite complicated. So because of those reasons and additional problems that in the sense that every time you leave hardware in the brain or leave any device in the body for that matter, you run the risk of infection and the DBS and its wires have problems with erosions, with battery failures, with disconnects, uh, with infection. So all of those problems together has meant that there's an adverse event rate of approximately 35%. So basically a third of the patients who get DBS have side effects relating to the implantation. So even though DBS works, because of the side effects, because of the complication surgery, because of the time it takes, because of the programming, it hasn't taken off as much as it should. There's approximately here in the U.S. there could be 100,000 patients with Parkinson's who could benefit, but only six to 7,000 receive this a year. And the reason for that is there's a real reluctance for patients to undergo this and for providers as well because of the limitations, the complications associated with it. In contrast, what we're doing here with gene therapy can be done under local anesthetic. It's a simple procedure. It can be done when fuse the, the solution containing the virus and the gene within less than two hours. It's an hour and a half infusion. Patients, because it's under local anesthetic, they can be discharged within a day or two. There's no hardware left in place, so the risks of infection, of bleeding, of all the other complications I mentioned are not really there. And particularly in our study, we showed that we had not a single adverse event relating to the gene therapy, that within 48 hours, every single patient was discharged without a fever or any other complication. So for a new technology, particularly medicine like this, I think that safety record is, is something that you know, I think is a, it gives it a real clean bill of health and suggests that even if it only had similar benefits to DBS, it would be a major advance simply by the ease of its use and the lack of any side effects. Can you just explain in a little more detail the actual process behind gene therapy and specifically the role of the virus, as presumed as a transporter, for, for the relevant genetic information that's required? So gene therapy is essentially, in, it's, it's really a name given to a sort of a, 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 a medical therapeutic technology in which you treat diseases or attempt to treat diseases with genes as opposed to drugs. And the, the, you know, the way to think about it is a gene essentially is a way of turning the body's own cells into a drug manufacturing, you know, little factory. So you need to deliver a gene and get a gene into a cell for that cell then to activate the gene and make a protein product. So when you first developed gene therapy, most people thought about gene therapy as a way to treat genetic diseases. In fact, the best, you know, targets or the best diseases or indications for gene therapy May not, be gene, may not be genetic diseases as much, but more diseases like Parkinson's, epilepsy, cancer, diseases we don't typically think as genetic diseases. It's just that gene therapy provides a way for us to focally or to locally deliver a gene and for that gene to be activated to attempt to treat the disease. So what we did here, for example, is we, the problem is that you can't just inject a piece of DNA or a gene into the body and expect it to do anything. You need to get the gene into the nucleus of the cell because... As you know, the DNA in all the cells in our body is located in the nucleus, and only in the nucleus can actually genes can do what they need to do, which is to basically encode proteins and make proteins. So that requires a method to deliver a foreign piece of DNA into the nucleus. And viruses have evolved to do exactly that. That's how viruses, viruses replicate. That's the whole biology and the evolution of viruses was to essentially 
attached to the other surface of the cell to pass through the cytoplasm, target into the nucleus, and then the viral DNA is released and it makes copies of the virus. So viruses essentially evolved to do exactly what we want to do in gene therapy. The key then was to actually develop or find a virus that was completely harmless and wasn't causing any toxic reaction in the body. And we were lucky to approximately 15 years ago now, we started working with a particularly defective virus, what we call AAV. And this virus is it's isolated, but it's one of the few viruses that's been isolated that has never been associated with human disease. So we're starting off with a, a defective viral particle that is, as far as we know, completely safe. And then we gut the virus, we take out the viral DNA, and we replace it with the healthy human copies of this gene that we want to deliver. And so now the virus essentially is a little protein. It's about the size of 20 nanometers, so it's a nanoparticle. So we, we often refer to these things as biological nanoparticles. It's essentially just a little protein shell, and within it, it carries a, a, a piece of DNA, and then we inject it into the body. That viral particle attaches to the cell membrane and then travels towards the nucleus, and the DNA is uncoated from the viral particle, inserted into the nucleus, and then it, there's machinery in the nucleus that enables proteins to be made to basically activate that gene or turn that, basically encode that gene or express that gene so we make copies of the new protein. And turning to the patients themselves in this phase one trial, and we should stress this is a safety and tolerability phase one study, so obviously early days, but you've already described the uh, relatively low maintenance, if you like, support that the patients need for gene therapy, so local anaesthetic, hospital for one or two days. What were the outcomes for those 12 individuals? Right, so as, as we mentioned just before, you're right, it's a simple surgery, patients discharged without problems, follow-up for now up to close on four years, um, no significant adverse events, first off. And that, as you said, a safety and tolerability study is designed primarily um, for safety. And we, as I said, we met that criteria and we're extremely encouraged by the lack of toxicity. Of course, once you show proof to people, forget about them, and they think, so what, what how did it work? Did this, was it was there improvements in these patient symptoms? And, you know, that is really, you know, what we're obviously very interested in. So we follow these patients very carefully. We did evaluations which included both the standard clinical measurements. So and because of Parkinson's disease, we, we look at the motor scores. We look at the scores of the tremor, the rigidity, the slowness of movement, the gait. And amongst those symptoms, we look at that both in what we call the on state when patients are on their maximally tolerated um, doses of their normal Parkinsonian medications and we also look at the off-state when you know, they haven't had the drug since the night before um, when they would normally be in their worst case. And DBS, for example, works particularly in the off-state when they don't have drugs on board and doesn't have much of an effect to improve it when they're already on the drug. What was exciting about our study is that we showed improvements in both the off-state and the on-state. The sort of improvement we were seeing was in the 25 to 30% range um, out at six months and persisted out 12 months, and that's when we the study ended, but we actually followed several patients and looked at this benefit maintained even out, as I said, close to four years. So that was very encouraging. That 25 to 30% may not seem a lot, but in fact, it's very similar to DBS. Remember, these patients are on optimal medical treatment, and they've really come to a point where if you get a, a approximately that sort of improvement, it makes a big difference in the sorts of activities they can do on a day-to-day -day basis. And the other important point here is that we only injected half of one hemisphere of the brain we were, because it was the first time gene therapy had been used for any disease like this, the FDA required us just to, for safety reasons, just to go onto one side. And so we would expect that 
with one side of the brain being treated having that magnitude of an effect, which is very similar to what you achieve with DBS done bilaterally, was extremely encouraging, and we, you know, we couldn't have wished for a better result. In the same token, you know, we have to be cautious. It's a phase one study. It didn't have control. And because of that, you, know, you have to be open to other possibilities. Was it placebo? Was it an injury? Was it some non-Pacific effect? We believe for many reasons that that is unlikely, but it's still something that until we do a controlled study, we have to be a little bit guarded and a little bit cautious in terms of optimism. And finally, if you would please, what's next? <laughs> Phase two, presumably. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the key, the key thing is to undertake a gold standard study. And the, and the gold standard study in clinical medicine is, is a double-blinded, randomized study where patients are recruited, they're randomized to either receive the active drug here would be the gene therapy, or to really make an appropriate control, we have a surgical, we would do a sham surgical control. Patients go into the OR, they'd get a partial thickness burr hole drilled, they would get the infusion of a drop of the vehicle but without the virus and then the scalp would be sutured, they'd be sent on their way and they would never know whether or not they received the real thing or the actual uh, sham surgery, neither would the clinicians who would be evaluating them. And that is really the only uh, way to definitively prove that this is efficacious. And is that going to happen? We're going to undertake that study kicking off later on this year and so we're excited with that'll be unlike this study which we did exclusively in New York, uh, the next study will be done at multiple centers throughout the US and as I mentioned we hope to get that underway a little bit later on this year. Well good luck with your ongoing research Professor During. thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. You're welcome, thank you Richard. Professor Matt During. also look out for the linked comment alongside this article. The author from British Columbia cautions that whilst this is a proof-of-principle study, it is still too early for neurologists to really take forward gene therapy as a treatment option at the moment. Well, that concludes this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.